Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friends of Fire, the podcast created by Southern Fire Exchange for practitioners, scientists, policymakers, and anyone who is interested in learning more about fire science in the southeastern United States. I'm your host, Marinell Armstrong, Outreach Specialist with Southern Fire Exchange. Thank you so much for joining us for our very first episode of Friends of Fire. I'm very excited about our conversation today, but before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to share a little bit of information about Southern Fire Exchange. Southern Fire Exchange is a regional program for fire science delivery in the Southeast. Working with our network of partners, we develop programs, opportunities, and events that bridge the divide between the fire science and natural resource management communities. Throughout the South, we host workshops, coordinate webinars, develop fact sheets, and create other content to move science into the hands of managers. We also work to connect researchers with the pressing and relevant needs of the natural resource management community. The topic for our very first episode today is reintroducing fire into long unburned southeastern pine forests. We will cover best management practices of getting fire back into these ecosystems, the challenges and risks of the process, and more. Many pinelands in the southeastern United States are adapted to short fire return intervals, but after many years of fire suppression have experienced high fuel loading and deep duff accumulation amongst other ecological changes. Although it is essential to reintroduce fire into these ecosystems in order to both mitigate wildfire risk and promote restoration of the area, there are many complications that accompany the reintroduction of fire. So today I have a researcher, Dr. AJ Sharma, here with us to discuss the science of reintroducing fire and a land manager, Shan Kamick, to share her experiences of reintroducing fire into long unburned pine forests. Dr. A.J. Sharma is an assistant professor of applied forest ecology at the West Florida Research and Education Center of the University of Florida. Over the past 18 years, he and his team have conducted forestry and ecological research in diverse forest types of India and the United States, covering a wide variety of topics. Most of his current research, however, has focused on silviculture and restoration of southern pine forests. Fire ecology is an important component of Dr. Sharma's research program, and he studies how prescribed fires affect understory, natural regeneration, and forest structure, as well as soil and microbial properties in these ecosystems. Shan Kamick has worked for the Georgia Department of Natural Resources for 23 years. She is a Wildlife Biologist three and serves as a Fire Management Officer for the Wildlife Conservation Section, focusing on restoring rare species habitat through prescribed burning, training, and environmental education. She is a friend of Burner Bob and helps promote his message in creative ways. She is also on the Southern Fire Exchange Advisory Board. Thank you both so much for being a part of the first episode of Friends of Fire. Let's start by talking about what happens when fire is removed from an ecosystem that is historically adapted to frequent fire. Dr. Sharma, could you explain some of the impacts of this kind of fire exclusion? Thanks, Mary. Well, when you exclude fire from these fire-maintained ecosystems, these ecosystems gradually lose their integrity. Um, you may not see much change in the initial few years, but over time after fire exclusion, uh, there will be accumulation of thick duff and litter layers on the forest floor. This duff layer could be four to five inches or, or maybe more in places. And you will find particularly heavy loads at bases of residual pine trees. This will be accompanied with some other structural and compositional changes in these ecosystems. 
slowly and slowly the ecosystem will start losing species, especially those species that require frequent burn regimes. These species are short-lived animals or some biannual species. These species will be gradually replaced by shrubby species, uh, which will further shade the forest floor. And along with the duff layer, lead to unnatural fuel buildup over the mineral soil. Lack of bare mineral soil will also hinder pine regeneration. Uh, shrubby understories have very low species diversity and are not suitable habitat for many species. These shrubby conditions might still be good enough for some generalists, but not for many specialist species associated with pine suenas. So you lose habitat value uh, because of fire exclusion over a long time. As decades pass by with fire exclusion, you will also see that hardwoods then dominate the mid-story and are increasingly becoming part of the overstory, uh, while pine component gradually declines. Overall density and biomass of the ecosystem increase. You also find that fuel distribution, uh, both vertical and horizontal, also changes. Fuel is coarser, unlike fine fuel in herbaceous understory. Now the fuel is more coarse and is distributed continuously from floor up to the canopy level, uh, what we call uh, as ladder fuel. The, the ladder fuel, along with the thick accumulated duff, can create dangerous conditions for wildfires and also make reintroduction of prescribed fire very difficult and risky. So overall, fire exclusion leads to serious structural and compositional changes in pine swinners, um, as well as the ecosystem services that these systems provide. Shan, what kind of experience do you have in introducing fire into long unburned pine stands? And what are some of the challenges that you have faced? Yeah, you know, as a manager for the state of Georgia, we inherit just huge amounts of fuel that have built up over years and years of fire exclusion. So the first thing is to just really be safe and careful in re reintroducing fire back into these areas that have so much fuel loading or amount of fuel that's available to burn. And as Dr. Sharma explained, um, when you have a large amount of fuel like that, you've got a big wildfire risk. So I think one of the most important things is to choose the right day to burn, to get that fire back into that ecosystem. And that means when the fuel is of a certain moisture, when the ground moisture is of a certain level, and certain weather parameters like uh, day since rain, relative humidity, things like that, to really get a very gentle conservative fire in for your first entry burns. Dr. Sharma mentioned the change in forest composition and the change in diversity. So another thing that a land manager needs to do is kind of look at like, what do we have right now? What is the forest and what do we see it being? Or what does it need to be in 50 or 100 years? And so then we think about, okay, today, what kind of fire do we need to set to get that ecosystem back on that trajectory? So there's a lot of things kind of playing into uh, your mind in terms of safely reintroducing fire and restoring that biodiversity. And Dr. Sharma, um, you touched a little bit about duff earlier. How does changing forest structure impact duff decomposition rates? Well, let's first consider a pine savanna. 
in Pinesuena, you have open or sparse canopy conditions that create very well illuminated and warm forest floor uh, with rich herbaceous and grassy cover. These conditions are very conducive for microbes that decompose litter and duff. But when structure changes, by which I mean that it gets denser with greater proportion of broadleaf species, the light reaching forest floor greatly diminishes. The forest floor is very shady in this condition. Uh, you also have more shrubs now that also create shade. Uh, with the changed composition, you also have different nature of fuel with different litter chemistry and decay rates. All these structural changes lead to much slower microbial decomposition rates. And as we know, uh, with slow decomposition, duff builds up with time. And when duff builds up and accumulates, you then have to be very mindful of the fuel moisture when you burn that area. Duff has got to be one of the most important factors to consider when reintroducing fire because the prolonged smoldering of duff can cause serious unexpected tree mortality. You could end up killing a lot of trees without realizing it because the impacts may not be visible until months following the burn. It can also be challenging to detect duff fires, but Shan has developed a technique that helps locate and put them out with minimal impact to the tree. Yeah, duff is definitely one of my uh, biggest nemesis. Um, when you buy a, a piece of land that has some old growth longleaf, you know, mature longleaf trees, you're like, wow, we've got this beautiful stand. And you're like, oh my gosh, like in, for example, Moody Forest, it had been burned in 75 years. But you're like, but it's longleaf, it's a fire forest, right? But you had to be so careful when we were first getting fire back into that ecosystem because of that accumulation of all that organic matter, especially around the trees and the duff. And then the feeder roots are growing into that duff. And you choose the wrong day, you're going to kill those trees. And it's so sad when you lose a beautiful old longleaf pine. So through trial and error and a lot of, you know, reading research, watching other people, we discovered you've got to pick the right day, like I mentioned earlier, in terms of the fuel moisture and the weather, but then you're never absolutely guaranteed that that duff is not going to catch on fire. So it's super important during the burn, even like immediately after you start lighting a fire, go in there and check to see if you've got duff fires, because you can always pull the plug. If it's not the right day, just cut it off and say, we're gonna wait till a more conservative day um, <clears throat> but if you pick the right day, you're moving the fire quickly across, little residence time, you want that fire to move fast and not get into that organic matter and burn it around the trees. At the end of the day, you still have to go and check your duff trees to make sure that you don't have duff fires. And this was a lot of work. <clears throat> and in the beginning, it was simply walking around looking for smoke, looking for little clouds of gnats, looking for that pockmark characteristic eating of the duff around a tree using the back of your hand to cold trail to find these hot spots um, and then often we thought well water's the only way so we bring in the water and just try to drown out the duff fires that's all very intensive it's very hard on your equipment and what if you have a really big area and you can't get water there so some people try tools like we got to dig it out just dig out all the duff from away from the tree but you got to be really really careful about that too because those trees kind of are relying on those feeder roots that have gone into that duff. So the technique that Mary Nell just uh, mentioned is what I like to call the Duff Buster 3000. 
No, it's a simple leaf blower, a backpack leaf blower. And what you're doing is it's like a walk in the woods. You got your blower on, you're walking around looking for a tree that has that mounded look at the base. It's like, I wonder if that tree's got a duff fire. And you simply walk up to it, pop it with a little, uh, the air. And if you see smoke or a little fire pop out, you realize, yes, we have a duff fire. And at that point, you can kick it out with your boot or dig it out with a tool. But what I found is you only want to get rid of what is burning and a little bit around it to prevent that duff fire from continuing to burn around the tree. And it's a delayed mortality thing. You know, you could burn, think you got the right day, not see any duff fires. And then two or three late years later, you're finding your, your older trees are dying. So it's really, really important to try to <clears throat> identify these duff fires and put them out, but not too aggressively because there's definitely research out there that has shown that if you go in there and just rake all the roots out from underneath a tree, you're going to kill that tree too. You got to be careful with that. And Shan even has a Duffbuster 3000 instructional video. And I will post that link in the description of this episode for everyone to watch. Dr. Sharma, what kind of research have you personally worked on that could relate to reintroducing fire? I'm an applied forest ecologist and most of my research is on silviculture systems and restoration of, of pine ecosystems. So within this context, uh, fire has been an important component of my research. Our one long-term study uh, in Florida Panhandle involved reintroducing fire to long unburned sites, which are not burned for 30 to 40 years. And these are slash pine flatwoods. Uh, we partially harvested these long unburned forests using different harvest methods and introduced fire at three year interval and have been monitoring uh, ground cover and pine natural regeneration for the past 10 years. Uh, we have published some of the results from this study already and some are in the process. Additionally, uh, very recently, uh, we, I and my uh, other collaborators from University of Florida, have started a study to evaluate how reintroduction of fire in pine flatwoods affects soils um, belonging to different soil series uh, and hydrology and water quality, uh, some of the areas that has not been explored much. Our other project uh, relates to the use of UAV LIDAR technology to map fuel distribution and, and debris decomposition in pine forests following catastrophic disturbances such as hurricanes. What other research has been published concerning fire reintroduction in the South and what are the results of these studies? What does the science say that land managers should do or should be aware of in order to bring fire back into their pine ecosystems? A good body of research has been conducted and published during the past decade or so uh, on this subject. Some good publications, as I can think of, have come from Tall Timber Research Station, um, University of Florida, Auburn University, um, and Southern Research Station, and other organizations across the Southeast, not to mention several from the Pacific West. In general, all these studies provide evidence that uh, reintroduction of fire uh, and other activities like thinnings were needed. 
or the tools to restore degraded pine forests. These tools can restore species diversity, promote natural regeneration, and enhance ecosystem services from these ecosystems. Specific to re reintroduction of fire, these studies emphasize the importance of managing duff because duff layer burns in a very peculiar manner, as we discussed. Duff smolders, and this long duration smoldering uh, can lead to mortality of even large mature pine trees. So the land managers uh, should reintroduce fire in a way that minimizes duff smoldering. This can be done through uh, burning under a range of moisture levels that will result in partial consumption of duff in any single burn. So maybe, you know, target are reducing one third or probably less of the total duff layer in a single burn. We should aim to burn a thick layer of accumulated duff in several burns, at least three burns or possibly more over several years. And these burns uh, should be dormant, uh, preferably. Uh, in addition, all other uh, considerations related to weather, personal safety, uh, and the choice of suitable fire techniques are important. Such an approach should um, slowly restore bare ground, uh, as well as pine regeneration and, and herbaceous plants that have been absent because of fire exclusion. So it sounds like it's important to reintroduce fire slowly in the correct season and under proper weather conditions, especially with adequate fuel moisture. And thinning will definitely help if that is a, you know, is, is one of the options in your restoration plan. Yeah, one really interesting thing that we found with uh, reducing duff is you'll, you'll take a few centimeters of the duff down with each burn, but then it seems to dry and decompose over the next year. So in the studies like Nathan Klaus has done in um, Central West Georgia, he's found that, you know, over successive burns, you, you burn away the duff, but then you decompose the duff. And it's taken him five to six burns to get down to kind of that mineral soil where you can open your prescription up. And over how many years did those six burns take place? Yeah, I think they burned, you know, 10 to 15 years before they really got down the duff down to where they didn't have to worry about what day of the, of the year. Because in the beginning, you might only have four or five days, right sweet spot of, of the weather and the fuel moisture that you're looking for to safely burn those trees. And we certainly found that at Moody Forest. I mean, we had to be so patient and the weather prescriptions were crazy. Sometimes it was like 20 mile an hour wind and two inches of rain the day before. And people are like, you're crazy to be burning on this day, but that's exactly what it needed. All the duff was wet from the top to the bottom. Cause if you have a dry layer of duff somewhere in the middle, the fire might just burn through the moisture on top and then hit that disc of dry duff and then create organic fire that you might not even see at all because the surface is kind of wet. So we've discussed how important it is to introduce fire under the proper weather conditions. I would think that you would also want to make sure that you have well-trained personnel to be ready to take on a first entry burn. Yeah, I've, I've given talks to uh, like Longleaf Alliance, does workshops on um, Longleaf. We're trying to educate landowners because, you know, in Georgia, only about 7% of the land base is actually owned by state or, or federal government. So 
land managers are really the private landowners. So we're trying to get the information to these people and teach these people like how to safely burn, what to think about, how to recognize if you have a duff issue and what kind of parameters you need to be looking at. So first entry burns definitely can be a little bit more dangerous because the kind of weather prescription I was talking about earlier where you want to write light a head fire or a fast moving fire, those are harder to catch on the other side. So you kind of need to know what you're doing in terms of setting up a, a downwind side of black that's safe to catch those little strip head fires or burning, you know, on a, a really windy day can be a little bit scarier. So it's, it's helpful to have people that have that experience and more people, obviously you could do a larger area. You could get more creative with your interior ignition because you still have people on the outside patrolling the lines to make sure that the fire's staying where it needs to be. But mostly it's, it's really just recognizing when you have a duff problem and what are the weather parameters and the fuel parameters, the, the soil moisture, for example, the KBDI, that's the Keep Fire and Drought Index. It's an index that you can find. Georgia Forestry site <clears throat> has that. It's from zero to 800. Zero is really wet. 800 is super dry. So if you're burning a duff unit, you would never want to burn if that KBDI is over like 50 or 100. Now you could argue that KBDI is really not applicable like in a sandhill where you've got super well-drained soils, but it is an indication of how much rain has been falling in general. So that's going to tell you about the wetness of the duff and also the dry fuels around. For example, duff fires can be ignited by a, a heavy, like a, a long limb or branch or pine cone that's super, super dry that hasn't or maybe a recent rain and it can lead fire up to the duff and burn down through the moisture that might be only on the top, which is why we also say you've got to know to dig through the duff, the entire profile of that organic soil and make sure you've got moisture all the way down. Is there any kind of other special preparation that goes into the site prep of a first entry burn? like in terms of fire breaks or snags? Yeah, when you're doing a first entry burn, you, you probably don't have fire breaks established. So you've got to think about how big of a unit do you want? Um, do you have natural barriers like rivers or creeks that would hold the fire to limit the amount of you know, soil disturbance and putting in a, a fire break? Do you have trails or roads that are already there that you could use? We kind of like fire fire breaks to, to fall along um, ecotones, right? Or not ecotones, but lines of, uh, you have like a pine plantation, that's a unit because it's kind of a, of a certain type of fuel loading and uh, plants. And then um, in big areas like we have uh, Doe Run Pitcher Plant Bog, we have this beautiful pine savanna interspersed with all these bogs. So it's a matrix of kind of wetlands and pines. So for a place like that, we want to kind of back out to the bigger picture and not cut it up into little pieces so that the fire can move through all these ecosystems as it once naturally did. Because that's really our goal is to mimic the natural fire, both in terms of how often it happened and how it moved across the landscape. Um, when you're first burning an area, you do need to look through for hazards like dead snags that are right on your line. Snags are great habitat for uh, animals. So if they're in the interior of unit, you don't really want to go in there and, and drop them. But if they're on your fire break or near the outside of the area you're burning, they can be a, a big problem if they 
catch on fire and then send embers across your fire break to the area that you don't want to burn. Jackpots of fuel, also another thing to look for. That's like an accumulation, like a big pile of something, uh, maybe an old uh, logging pile or ladder fuels. Dr. Sharma mentioned that earlier where fuels have just accumulated up and vines have lofted pine needles up and down and that can carry fire up into uh, the canopy, things like that. And snacks can be taken care of a couple different ways. If they are a good habitat tree, they could be raked around. And that means that each year you burn that unit, you're gonna have to rake around it again, but it adds ecological value. Or you could take it down with a chainsaw, but be sure to low stump it if it's near your fire break because a standing stump can still send embers outside the unit and potentially start a spot fire. And talking about during this prescribed fire, so during this first entry burn, are there certain firing techniques that you recommend or advise against? You mentioned head fires a bit before. Is that a recommended technique for a first entry burn? Head, strip head fires can be a very, very effective tool, ignition strategy for dealing with duff places. Um, you have to be really careful because a strip head fire is going to have a much higher flame length and it's going to build in intensity so you've got to make sure that you have set a good baseline ahead of that. Typically, that's more experienced people are doing that kind of burning. So if you can do some pre-treatment, like at Moody Forest, we went through and we cut out a lot of that hardwood mid-story that was creating all that fuel and drug it out there. We didn't just leave it there. And in that way, you can have maybe a head fire run through that because you've reduced the fuel amount. So when you're dealing with high fuel loads and high duff loads, you're hampered at, you know, the tools that you can safely get a fire in there, I think. So what about backing fires? What are the pros and cons to their use in first entry burns? Yeah, backing fires are a really good technique in terms of burning an area and burning it slowly and carefully, easier to control but there's a longer residence time with a backing fire. So if a, a fire walks to an area that has duff, it has more time to get into that duff, dry out, preheat the other duff to catch it on fire. So that's why in duffy areas, we kind of want little strip head fires to glance across the top. And patience is really, really important in burning duff. You know, you can't just go out there and expect one fire to completely transform the forest Get your species that you wanted back and reduce all the duff because that's not going to happen. You cannot burn off that much duff with each fire. You kind of have to be patient and be okay with just a little bit of duff being consumed because each fire it gets a little bit easier and a little more duff is, is removed. Are there any unique watch out situations and safety concerns when it comes to reintroducing fire? Certainly a higher amount of fuel loads and just not knowing the area. You don't know how it's going to burn. And unless you've walked the entire area, you don't know what's on the inside. So that's why we, we recommend that people choose a conservative prescription weather parameters. And typically your first entry burns are going to be in the dormant season. Um, we've had great success too, though, doing a second or third burn in the growing season if you, if you do it on a one-year rough. So I'm not saying that growing season is not a great tool, it's a first entry burn, you're probably going to hit that in the wintertime on a really mild day. After a first entry burn has been completed, what type of post-fire work needs to be done in terms of mop-up, checking the fire, or any kind of post-burn evaluation? 
Yeah, typical for for all burns, you got to get out there and make sure your fire breaks are solid. You don't have active fire burning within 20, 30 feet of your um, breaks or even more if, it, if it's next to a, a property line, depending on what's outside the unit. With dust fires and long unburned fires, you need to walk through there and make sure, hey, was there a wetland that's maybe the fire break that could be holding fire for several days afterwards. So that's why if you see any kind of active fire near the break, you want to come back day after day just to make sure that it's staying within, or maybe it needs to be mopped up and, and put out. We typically like to let as much out as possible right on the fire break, because then the next time you burn, you're not dealing with that. But within with Duff, like I said earlier, you definitely want to start your monitoring immediately during the day because duff can catch at different times of the day as the relative humidity drops or as sun reaches an area that was cool in the morning to make sure that you don't have any duff fires because the sooner you can get to those duff fires and put them out, the better chance you have of, of saving that tree. And certainly um, in really duffing conditions, we want to come back the next day and the following couple of days to make sure we don't have any duff fires. Because I've actually seen where everything went well, didn't really have many duff fires that first day, but some drying or some accumulation of uh, debris that we didn't realize was dry enough carried a fire to the duff and wasn't discovered until the next day. So you got to do your mop up at that point. Dr. Sharma, what are some forms of post-fire evaluation that you've seen? Well, post-fire evaluation, um would depend on your objectives. Most of the research that we are doing is, is, is about understory restoration or natural regeneration success of desired species, uh, mostly our story species, longleaf pine or slash pine. So our post-fire evaluation generally involves change in species composition, quantifying changes and quantifying seedling survival, mortality, and their growth following. So for that perspective, from fuels management, you could look at the reduction in fuel levels. From carbon perspective, you look at the decomposition rates or carbon decay afterwards or reduction in the, in the above ground carbon. From management perspective, from chance perspective, is perhaps the drift reduction or fuel reduction uh, or meeting whatever the objectives of your of fire regime is. Yeah, we actually even put in our burn plan of, of what kind of post-burn monitoring how we would evaluate a burn. Uh, we look at things like the amount of litter that was consumed, is there any crown scorch, things like that. Um, and basically we're looking for that shift in species over time. Um, in some areas we do a little bit more formal monitoring. We set up fire photo monitoring points and follow that through time to see the changes in species and the development of that herbaceous layer. So I think post-burn monitoring ranges from just checking the fire to make sure it's out to checking the changes that happened and are we achieving our objectives that we outlined in our burn plan and are we moving this forest into the uh, into the trajectory that we're hoping for. And a lot of some of the from the science perspective or research perspective some of the post uh, fire evaluation that we do is about the, the temperatures that reach at different locations, fire temperatures reach at different locations during the burn, and which we do with the use of thermocouples. And then those temperatures are correlated with 
the fuel characteristic, fuel distribution, as well as the post-fire uh, response of understory and regeneration. So that we develop models um, of fire temperature with the ceiling survival or restoration outcomes. Are there any current research efforts that we haven't mentioned that could help land managers with this subject? Well, I must say that Shen is very well acquainted with current research in the field, and she has been uh, using that research in her practice. So that's commendable. Great. Um, you know, this is an exciting time for all of us involved in fire ecology and forest restoration as some new technologies and approaches such as high resolution LIDAR and artificial intelligence are increasingly available now and are being used in making assessments of fuel load and distributions and providing insights that were not possible before. Um, some of the useful current research is related to the application of UAV LIDAR techniques to map fuel and estimate fuel distribution. Uh, new generation sensors are helping us to map and evaluate prescribed fire effects. Uh, machine learning approaches are now enabling us to leverage big data to answer questions related to fire ecology and its impacts on ecosystems at landscape level and how fires impact forest structure and composition and change over time and also enabling us to develop some predictive models. Shan, what further research would be helpful to you and to the Southern land management community as a whole when it comes to reintroducing fire, considering both safety of personnel and ecological benefits? Oh, I think what uh, Dr. Sharma mentioned is, is fantastic. I think another thing that's, that's really on our mind with recent hurricanes is like this input of just incredible amount of fuel on the ground. And so we're just grappling with how do we safely get fire? I mean, we've been burning these places for decades, but now all of a sudden half of the forest is on the ground. So it's new territory for us. So um, I know Southern Fire Exchange was pulling together like a list of resources or management recommendations, and that'll be super, super helpful to the rest of us that have not quite gotten to all of these areas getting fire back, but really appreciate that. And I think you guys are an incredible bridge, you know, because land managers, we're tasked with so many things and just have so little time to do everything that we need to do. We don't really how often have the luxury to read these publications, but, you know, pulling together a fact sheet or having a, a webinar and getting the information out to the land managers and serving as that bridge between researchers and managers is, is super helpful. So I wanted to thank you guys for that. Well, thanks, Shan. We appreciate that. And that's one of the goals of this podcast, to make science more accessible to busy land managers while also communicating the needs of practitioners to scientists who can help answer these questions. It's a new platform for us, and we're hoping that it'll improve the accessibility of fire science for all who are interested. Okay, that concludes our segment today. Thank you both so much for taking the time to be a part of Friends of Fire, especially for our very first episode. It has truly been a pleasure to learn so much about the complexities and importance of reintroducing fire into long unburned pine ecosystems. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mary. Support for this podcast comes from a grant from the Joint Fire Science Program. Special thanks to the University of Florida, Tall Timbers Research Station, and North Carolina State University. Music by David Bergen. 
If you would like to share your feedback from the show today, or if you have an idea for a future episode, email us at contactus at southernfireexchange.org.